0: But today we're going to be back into our church matter series focusing on relationships and we'll be at our 1 Corinthians 9 chapter uh, 9 verses 19 through 27. So if you have your Bibles or your devices, please follow along with me. And a little bit of context. We're going to set this up last week. Paul talked about the relationship between the shepherd and the sheep, right? He talked about leadership the dynamic that takes place between leaders and those who follow the leaders. And today, Paul's talking about evangelism, a different type of leader. We are called to lead people to Christ. Paul obviously has a passion for evangelism, seeing the, uh, uh, the lost become saved. Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. And so today, Paul is going to talk about the relationship or the dynamic between Christians and the world. And we're all to be part of this race. So Paul gives us his heart. He kind of takes open his heart and his mind and gives us a peek into how his mind works in in, in regards to evangelism. And he does use sports metaphor. Paul's a sports guy. And uh, he understood that Corinth was a sports town. So the Corinthians, they quite were very clear about what he was saying through the metaphor of sports. And Just to take us back, Paul understood the Corinthians. I mean, it's 50 AD. Paul steps foot into Corinth for the first time. He's on his second missionary journey, and God will have him there for 18 months. And as Paul spent time in Corinth, he walked through and he saw this massive arena, this massive stadium built out of cut stone, stacked upon each other. He goes, wow, that's pretty impressive. And as he maybe perhaps went into the arena, he sees a well-manicured track. And as he enters into winter month, people are getting ready for the spring. And they're making arrangements to get ready for a big event in spring. And even he might be involved in conversations and and, and dialogue with people about who's going to win. And as spring rolls around, he starts to see the elite athletes from all around the empire gather to at Corinth. And he's thinking, what is going on? And anticipation starts to build in Corinth. As they gather to see who would eventually rise as the winners or the champions of the Isthmian Games. This is what Paul's talking about here. The Corinthians knew very well that the Isthmian Games was a big part of their culture. I mean, the Isthmian Games happened every other year, every two years. They held this event similar to Olympics and similar to prestige in Olympics. I'd say this was second in prestige to the Olympic Games. So Paul was able to experience this drama every other year. And in AD 51, in the, in the spring, Paul was able to see this firsthand. So as you think about this, the the, the, the picture that Paul is able to see and he's able to connect very quickly with the Corinthians, let's rise and read 1 Corinthians 9 together. I think you're going to be able to feel this more now that you have that picture. 1 Corinthians 9, God's word says this, starting from verse 19. For though I am free for all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews that became as a Jew, so that I may win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not my being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. Verse 22, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, Paul writes, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Verse 24, here's the metaphor. Do you not know that those who run in a race all win, but only one receives a prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Paul writes, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in the things, in all things. They didn't do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we get to preach what Paul wrote in, in Corinthians 9. I pray that your spirit will allow me to preach your word faithfully. Allow your And I pray your spirit will allow us to get a greater picture of your son, Jesus Christ, and how he thinks. So thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. Pastor Marco right. The name of the sermon is called Just Win Baby. I mean, if you grew up in the 80s in Los Angeles, you know exactly where this comes from. This comes from the iconic owner of the Raiders, Al Davis. He just His slogan was, whatever it takes, just win baby. Right? And you see how many times Paul uses the word win in this short passages. But Al Davis, you know, you, you had to admire him. He was a one track mind. He wanted to win. And his idea of winning was to dominate the competition, to dominate them physically, psychologically, tactically, in every single way, to dominate the competition. And as Americans, I think we, there's a part of us that admires that. Because, like, yeah, that's right. Because as, as Americans, we understand winning is part of our culture. And as Americans, I like to think that we like to think of ourselves as winners, right? That's, this is an important thing for us. It's so important and so emphasized in our culture that I think it's made our psyche very fragile, right? Meaning, I got to win. I got to be seen as a winner. I can't lose, you know, you participate in youth sports, you got to get a ribbon, right? Everyone gets a ribbon for participation. Everyone needs an award. I don't think that's helpful, personally. I don't think that's helpful. I think it's important to teach our people how to win in a way that honors the Lord and teach our people how to lose in a way that honors the Lord. It's, that's just life. Life is about winning and losing. This is, this is what happens. So I think it's important to teach our church family how to compete, you know? and to compete to win. Winning is important. However, as Christians, we need to know what a win is, right, for a Christian. We don't compete as the world competes. We compete for Christ. So what is a win for a Christian? Well, one of the reasons why Paul stayed at uh, Corinth for 18 months is because in Acts 18.10, Jesus tells him, I have many people in this city, right? God says, I have many people in this city. So let's, make, let's be very clear. God does all the saving. God elects us, chooses us. God gives spiritual dead people spiritual life so that they have spiritual blindness. Now they have spiritual sight to see who Christ is. And they could come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. God does all the saving. However, God has chosen to use his people to deliver the message of the gospel. So let's never discount our involvement in people being saved. Let's never do that. Don't, let's, let's not sit back in our easy chairs and think, all right, God will just save whoever he wants to save. He will. However, he's given us the honor, the privilege of serving alongside him, serving underneath him to deliver the gospel message, to be part of evangelism. This is very important that we understand. We don't ever want to underestimate our role. I mean, winning. Is important. I mean, Paul uses the word win six times in these, in these few verses. Let me just read you some of it again. Verse 19, so that I may win more. Verse 20, so that, I may, so that I might win Jews. Verse 20 again, so that I might win those who are under the law. Verse 21, so that I might win those who are without the law. Verse 22, that I might win the weak. Win, 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 win. Paul's talking about this. And the Corinthians knew exactly what he was talking about. It was important in Corinth to win. But Paul's actually teaching them what a win is. In verse 22, Paul tells us what a win is. At the end, so that I may by all means save some. Paul understood that he had a huge part on having helping people come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. Right. God does a saving. We're not worried about Paul's theology here. We understand this, but Paul should emphasize how actively involved he is in the process. And Paul was focused on winning for Christ. I wasn't I'm not worried about Paul's heart on this. I, I get it. He wants to dominate and win for Christ. And he understood how to win. He understood how to employ every spiritual muscle, every spiritual emphasis on winning for Christ. And today, he's going to tell us how he got it done. In fact, he's going to tell us how Jesus taught him how to win for him. At the end of the day, Jesus is Paul's coach. Jesus is the one that trained Paul personally in Nabataean Arabia for three straight years. And so here are the four points. I like to give these points so we can kind of follow along. We'll we'll cover them uh, point by point. But the first point is is we need to have the game plan to win. The game plan. That's the fill in the blank. The next point is we need to have the will to win. The will to win. The next point, the third point, is that we need the motivation to win. We need to be able to see a prize, the motivation to win. fourthly, we need to have the discipline to win. All right? So let's get to our points here. What is required to win? First point, we need the game plan, fill in the blank game plan to win. All right. Paul says this in verse 19 here. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. That was Paul's game plan. I'm going to make myself a slave to you, Corinthians, every single one of you and, and anyone else I get to come across so that I may win you to Christ. How does that make sense? That will not fit Al Davis's plan on winning. Right, this does not go, against, uh, go along with worldly wisdom. I'm going to be your slave so I could win. Second Corinthians 4 5 says, we preach Christ. We proclaim Christ and make ourselves your bondservants or slaves. Bondservants, same word for slave. We make ourselves your slaves. Paul understood this. He said this a couple times to the Corinthians. So that I may win more. In essence, what Paul is saying is this. I'm going to remove as many obstacles or any offenses so that we could create and establish loving relationships with one another. That's what Paul saying. I am going. He's demonstrating his Christian maturity. I'm going to surrender my rights, my liberties, contrary to Corinthian thinking about I need to secure my rights and my liberties, contrary to our world, our current world's idea of uh, securing our rights and liberties. And said I'm going to remove these things if it causes someone to be offended. Right? The Isthmian Games it was similar to Olympics. Like I said, there there's events involved in track and field chariot races, wrestling even for your wrestlers, your judo guys, and even boxing. Boxing was one of those sports where they wrapped uh, wet leather around their hands, let it dry off, and they started hitting each other. I mean, that is a lot harder than the boxing gloves that they use today. And what comes to mind, I had a chance to talk to my dear coach from University of Southern California this week, Coach Paul Hackett, and and we played in Notre Dame, 1999. We flew out to South Bend. We were staying in Michigan City, a small little town. And Coach Hackett arranged a special guest to come motivate us the day before the game. And that guest was Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali came and hang out with the team. And we even watched a movie together. There was a documentary called When We Were Kings. And When We Were Kings was a documentary about his great fight with George Foreman. It's called the Rumble in the Jungle. That was the name of the fight. They built it up. Muhammad Ali was in retirement. He came out of retirement, passed his prime, and here's big bad George Foreman in his prime just crushing everybody. He was a champion, and Muhammad Ali uh, decided that he wanted to fight him as a challenger, but he knew he couldn't go blow to blow with this young uh, champion. So Muhammad Ali taught us what he did. He was talking to us and, talk and sharing with us and kind of elaborating in between the documentary. This is where he introduced us to the rope-a-dope, all right? For some of you guys who don't know what the rope-a-dope is, the rope-a-dope, Betty, is this. Muhammad Ali will li- lean on the ropes, you know, the ropes around the boxing ring, and he would allow himself to just get punched by George Foreman. He would cover up his head, his body, as best he can. And he just punch after punch after punch after punch. Now, keep in mind, George Foreman is a physical specimen, wailing on him like a punching bag. But what eventually happened is that George Foreman punched himself out of the fight. He was tired. And Muhammad Ali came back and knocked him out. And the whole world was introduced to the rope of dope. You get it now, right? Rope of dope. And so this is Muhammad Ali losing, 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 or seemed to be losing. And at the end, he came, on, he came and finished him off and captured the world championship, the rope dope And in essence, this is what Paul is saying for us. We're called to lose at the same time, keeping our eyes in the prize of what we're trying to accomplish. We're trying to see people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Paul was shrewd. Paul was more shrewd than Muhammad Ali. He knew exactly what he was doing. And in verse 20, to, 20, verse 20 through 22, to the Jew I became a Jew, to those who are under the law I became those under the law, meaning I, I will do some of the religious practices of the Jews or, to, or follow some of the cultural customs of the Jews so that I wouldn't offend them, meaning I'm, he was not about to eat a, a pork chop in front of his Jewish people that he's trying to evangelize because that would be highly offensive. He even had Timothy in Acts 16.3, his, his understudy, be circumcised as a grown man so he would not be offensive to the people that he was trying to evangelize, the Jews. This is what Paul saying. He was giving up his liberties. He was giving up his rights so that he would be less offensive to the Jewish people. To those without the law, he became without the law, meaning to Gentiles, non-Jewish people. Meaning now, on the flip side of things, he would have a a pork meal with his Gentile friends so that he could connect with them. To the weak, I became weak. To the socially, economically depressed, he came down to the level. Even to those who didn't quite understand the gospel message, he explained it to them in a way they could understand Now, keep in mind, Paul may have adjusted some of his liberty, but did he ever compromise the message of the gospel? Answer is no, never. Otherwise, he'd be forfeiting his goal. Otherwise, how could anyone come to Christ? It was more than just to connect with a a, a man or a woman. It was more than that. It was to say, okay, there was an ulterior motive. Yes, he had an ulterior motive. He wanted to connect so he could minister the gospel message to them. In essence, if you're curious about, okay, what is our modern day rope-a-dope as Christians? Just read, uh, let's look at verse 21 here. To those who are without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, Paul still submitted to God's standards, he didn't compromise his Christian convictions. But under the law of Christ, what is the law of Christ? That is the guiding principle for you and me as we think about, okay, how do I, how, what does this look like? Paul's not able to talk about every single scenario, every single culture, but the law of Christ guides us in this. The law of Christ, according to Galatians 5, 13, and 14, is love. The law is fulfilled in how you love one another. How you're to limit your liberties to communicate love to your friend or your neighbor. This is what you're doing. You never compromise your Christian convictions. You never compromise the message of the gospel. But you'll surrender other things so that you eliminate obstacles for you to connect with people. All right? So verse 23 is a verse, one of my life verses. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. How's that sound? I do all things for the sake of the gospel. I'm a doctor for the sake of the gospel. I'm a housewife for the sake of the gospel. I'm an attorney for the sake of the gospel. I am a builder for the sake of the gospel, I'm a parent for the sake of the gospel, I'm a son or daughter I'm a, to, for the sake of the gospel. Everything that we do is for the sake of the gospel, to advance the gospel, to take the Great Commission forward, right? This is what we're called to do, to make disciples. And it says, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. I like the ESV version. I think that's a little bit clearer on what that phrase means. That I may, I'm reading the ESV, that I may share with them in its blessing. Paul had a passion to see people come to Christ and to share in the beautiful blessing of being part of God's family. He wanted more people to be part of the heavenly chorus to give praise to God. This is what motivated Paul. Paul wanted to see more people come to Christ. That's Paul's heart. This was a win for Paul to see more people come to Christ. Now, we learned about the rope dope from Muhammad Ali, right? We learned about that rope from Muhammad Ali. We like to give him credit for that. But where did Paul get this technique? I'm going to lose to win technique. Well, Sister Carol Suguchi read it out of Philippians. Jesus says that he made himself a bond servant The word is, in the original language, slave. Remember, Paul spent three years with Jesus in Nabataean Arabia. Did Paul not know this? Of course he knew this. He wrote Philippians. He learned this from Christ himself. This is the technique. This is the game plan that the Lord taught Paul. I must die. I must surrender myself to win. And Paul clearly understood this. Matthew 20, 26 to 28. Matthew 20, if you're taking notes, says this. You must become a servant. If you want to be great, you must be a slave to one another. This is what Jesus was telling the disciples. No doubt Paul heard the same type of uh, training in the desert. This is the plan. So the key idea here is this. The gospel message, if you say it correctly, is offensive. What do you mean by that pastor? To tell somebody who's in who's not regenerate to say, "Hey, when you die you're going to be judged to hell." That's a pretty offensive message, I'd say. Or to say, "Hey, your culture, your custom that you've been believing for hundreds of years is wrong." I'd say that's a, a could be an offensive message, right? So the gospel message if said with incompleteness will be offensive. Therefore, we don't need to be offensive, but let's not add to the offense. Let's commu- connect with our people in love so that we could bridge the gap to communicate the good news of the gospel. Let's move on to the next point. What gives life to the game plan? Because having a game plan is just theory. You need people to actually execute the game plan, right? Amen. Oh, that's a good idea. I want to be a slave to win some. That's, that's a good thought, Paul. But that's not good enough. That's just theory. Point number two we need the will to win, to energize the game plan. The will to win is what we need. We need to have this desire. Number one trait that we look for drafting players, signing players, uh, having coaches join us is this number one thing. It wasn't their smarts. It wasn't how fast or how quick they are, how big they were. The number one thing we look for is, did they, did they have a competitive nature? Clearly, if they didn't, they didn't fit our culture. Did they have a competitive nature so that the plan that we have set forth, they will execute that as best they can to the best of their abilities? That's the difference. The competitive nature, the difference between winning and losing is not much now. small. There are a lot of talented people around. The difference between winning and losing is this much. The difference between good teams and championship teams is this much. And that is what f- fuels the game plan to make it actually work. And so the Corinthians, unfortunately, they're spiritually flabby. They're spiritually lethargic. And Paul was showing a light of fire underneath them to say, hey, look, guys, let's go. It's time to go. And so Paul was... a He'd be a great coach. He was a master exhorter, motivator, and this is what he was doing. He was trying to help them to understand that Corinthians, you don't need to have these indulgences. You don't need to be overly focused on yourself. That makes you flat, a fat spiritually and flabby spiritually. That makes you lethargic. We need you to be in shape. Paul was saying. So verse 24, here's the athletic metaphor. We're jumping to verse 24 now. Do you not know those who run in the race all run, but only one receives a prize. Only one receives a prize. Back to the Isthmian games. Only one received the prize. There was no silver medal. There were no bronze medals. There were no participation ribbons. Those things didn't exist. There was only one victor and one hero's treatment. One person won the event. And these, and prizes are not gifts. These aren't just things that are given to these victors. They have to earn them. They have to fight for these things. In the Isthmian games, the drama would build up. As we all enter into the arena watching the athletes come into the arena, all our focus would be focusing onto their track. As these chiseled athletes would walk onto, uh, onto the arena, oftentimes barely dressed with anything to not hinder themselves in the race. Ripped up, shredded up. And you can see, wow, look at these guys. They're going to get after it. And they get into their block. You I'm not know, sure what type of shoes they had. If they had any, they get into their blocks. And then, boom, you hear the sound, and boom, you, all the athletes explode out of the gates. And they're running down the track. And you could see the intensity coming out from these men who are fighting for their athletic lives. And if you could see a close-up of their eyes, you could see just a laser-focused uh, look in their eyeballs. Like I am running for the prize. I'm going to do everything I can to win because my village, the sound, the city that I come from, my mom and dad, my brothers and sisters, are counting on me to win and to represent the city that I come from. This was life and death for these men who competed in these games. And the Corinthians, they understood this metaphor. So when Paul says, therefore, run to win, they got it. They got it. It's like, yeah, I see it. That's the type of intensity that you're talking about, huh, Paul? That's right. He's going, when he says the games, he's talking about the Isthmian games. He's talking about the games that they were preparing for, for, for two years to pull off this event. Running is a metaphor for the Christian life. Running is a picture of the Christian life. But we need to have purpose as we run this life. We need to have a serious approach as we run this Christian race. We need to know that we're on a mission, right? We need to know this. It's not good enough to showing up not, not knowing what I'm do, do, doing. I have a mission While I'm on God's green earth, I have a mission to do. It's not good enough just to be in the race. It's not good enough just to get a a jersey. It's not good enough just to be a Christian. We need to fulfill the calling that God has given each and every single one of us. Must run to win. Paul saying you must run to win. The will to be faithful to our Lord, that needs to be there. That needs to be there. To be spiritually competitive. Not for the Isthmian gains, but for the Christ and for one another. Let me just say this much. We're talking a lot about competition just so we're not mistaking what I'm saying. The competition is not with other Christians. I'm not competing with brother or sister. The competition is within ourselves. Are we able To win that battle that rages within all of us. Are we going to yield to the spirit? Or are we going to yield to our sinful flesh? That's what we're talking about. And the race is a great commission. Go make disciples. Jesus already set the course for us. Go and make disciples. That's the race. The will gives life to the game plan. We need that will, that fire within us to make this game plan go. Go. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of theory, just a bunch of ideas. The game plan is dead without the will to win. Now, the issue is this. The will might burn hot for a season, but it does need fuel, right? You could be fired up coming out for that retreat, right? You know what I'm talking about. You come home, I'm fired up, and a week later, I'm back to normal, right? <laughs> so the will is good, but the, that engine, that 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 furnace needs fuel to burn hot. So the third point is this. What feels the will to win? We need the fill-in-the-blank motivation to win. The motivation to win. All right? Verse 25, Paul gives us the motivation here. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Competes. There's that word competes again. In the original language, that means That's that, that means to agonize. That's where we get the word Agonize. This word agonizomai means to fight, to struggle, to strive, to strain. And i say this is very consistent in how Paul described the Christian life. In Colossians 1, he talks about laboring, striving. In Ephesians 6, he's talking about life is a struggle. The Christian life is a struggle. In 1 Timothy 6, he goes, Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. It's a fight. Philippians 3 says, I press on, I fight on, I move on, I push forward towards the goal. There's nothing sedentary about Paul's language here. absolute nothing. I see a lot of urgency here. I see a a voice that's connected to this idea that I don't know how long I'm going to live. And when I see the Lord, I want to be found faithful. There's a sense of urgency there. And it says he competes so that he, with self control in all things. That means he controls his bodily functions, his attitudes, his talk, the, the things that he decides to involve himself with. He competes in all things. He needed to be trained. In the training in the Isthmian Games was rigorous. It was ten grueling months. Now, ten grueling months where there's daily training to the point where your muscles are about to cramp up, to the point where at times you're throwing up, to the point where you are just absolutely exhausted. Your your joints hurt, your feet hurt. And there's a constant monitoring of the diet for 10 months. These athletes denied themselves certain pleasures, certain drinks, certain foods, because they could eat themselves out of the competition. Because they knew in the back of their minds... That guy from northern Greece, he's working, and I've heard about him. And we're going to meet, and we're going to clash at, at, in Corinth. And I know if I take a day off today, that guy isn't. He's going to get a ground on me. That's the type of mentality that these great competitors have. Any competitor knows that the, the, the season is one, in the offseason. You know this. You know this. It's the training. It's the preparation before you even get to the competition. So the competition is constant daily within yourself. And so these men were in serious training. And the final phase of the training, after the 10 months, they'd show up in Corinth for a month. For a whole month. And you know what they would do? They would train some more and the judges would be watching them, evaluating them. Is this man fit to actually compete in these games? We don't want second-rate athletes competing in this. We need the elite of the elite to maintain the prestige of this event So they had another month of training, where the Corinthian officials, the Isthmian game officials, would judge them: Are you fit? Are you not fit to join in the competition? It was like a tryout. It was an absolute grind. I mean, it it is just a grind mentally and physically. Under these conditions, many of us would fall out. Okay, many athletes would fall out eventually. Therefore, motivation is needed. Right here, Paul says in verse 25, they then do it, follow along with me, at second half of verse 25, they then do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we an imperishable. In this stadium, there was a Bema seat located there. What is a Bema seat? Bema seat is a platform where there was a seat and the judge of the Isthmian game sat there. And the, the, the judge would be the one to hand out the Stephanos. The Stephanos is the wreath that Paul's talking about here. The Stephanos was the one that the men competed year-round to to obtain. The Stephanos is the one thing that the, the winner wanted to bring back home to his hometown to say, look, our city is a city of champions. The Stephanos was made out of pine, parsley, some celery and obviously would decay over time rather quickly. It was more than the Stephanos. It was it's what everything that represented and came with the Stephanos is what it was about. It was the honor and the fame, the gold that would come to those who will read to win the Stephanos. Striving for that goal looking for that goal, motivated. This is why I'll sacrifice normal human life to have a chance, just even chance, to get this award. Remember, every athlete that came brought his whole village with him in his heart. Whole town, whole Polo state. None of them just came on their own. And other people have invested in them so they could train year-round. Other people have encouraged them so they could train year-round. Other people have promised them gifts and honor if they were to train year-round and to win. However, the perishable wreath is perishable. Pine, parsley, celery, that would decay over time. And so with the honor and the fame, these great athletes, they may even make statues of them, monuments for them, busts for them, but they would be forgotten too someday. Perishable wreath. People have asked me, Rocky, what do you miss about coaching in NFL? Immediate thing that comes to mind uh, is relationships. I miss the relationships that I had with so many of the players and coaches and staff. But the second thing that I missed is a seriousness to win. I miss that. Just that flat-out all effort, seriousness to achieve the goal that we are agreeing to be a part of. And I'll be honest with you, brothers and sisters, not for all. I would say the level of motivation in sports to win serves as a rebuke to many of us. How serious are we about winning for Christ? If in the NFL we're so motivated to, you know, to, for imperishable or perishable wreath like the Super Bowl, although they give you better things like a ring than a piece of, you know, lettuce on your head, but it is nicer. Nonetheless, Nonetheless, it's still perishable. And we're driven to win for this thing at a, ra- at a crazy pace. So Paul's basically making a lesser to greater argument. If these men fight and battle for this parsley, how much more, Corinthians, should you be competing for the prize, the imperishable prize? 2 Corinthians 5.10, if you want to write this down, 2 Corinthians 5.10 talks about how we will face the judge someday, Jesus Christ, and he will distribute awards depending on what we did. Although salvation is completely free as a gift, these rewards are completely earned. Jesus will give us these eternal rewards and what are these eternal rewards? I was kind of just drawn, my mind was drawn because like, okay, I believe in concept that there's going to be these eternal rewards, but what are these rewards going to be like? Right? What are these rewards going to be like? The Bible talks about certain honor, perhaps even a certain responsibility that the Lord will give to us to help him rule the cosmos. But look, here's one reward that I want us to feel tangibly. If you got your Bibles, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is important because this gives us a tangible prize, right? This is, this is so important that we see this because this is going to affect the way that you see people walking down the street now. 1 Corinthians 2, 19. He's talking about the Thessalonian church. This is Paul again. For who is our hope or, or joy or crown of exaltation? He's asking this rhetorical question. Is it not even You? in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming, meaning, aren't you the prize? Thessalonian church, those who God has allowed me to help lead to Christ and to sanctify, aren't you gonna be the source of my joy in that day when we see the, the Lord together? For you, verse 20, are our glory and joy. Although all honor and glory goes to Jesus Christ, we understand this. Those who God has used to lead to Christ will be our source of joy and glory. We're going to say, man, isn't this great? We're here together. People that you don't even know. Like, man, I was watching you from afar, and I heard you speak the gospel to somebody, and I believe. I never came up and talked to you, but I, I believe. Maybe that person you're flying over to Japan, and you talk to them about Christ, and they go like, all right, whatever. And you never see them. All of a sudden, you show, see them show up in heaven with you. How about your parents, your aging parents? They go, no way. There's no way they're going to believe but you diligently pray for him. you share the gospel, and they may not even give you an affirmation before they're passing, but all of a sudden, whoa, Dad, what a joy. Are you kidding me? This is way better than any parsley or any Super Bowl ring. These are walking trophies in eternity, are a source of joy back and forth to one another. And one of the most incredible things happened to me this past, three weeks ago. I knew that God called us to be down here in Southern California, and I know to serve as a pastor at Evergreen SGV, but something so incredible happened to me. My dear friend, Merv Sakurai, who's part of our church family, I've known him for almost 40 years. He's known me, he's seen the, bad, the good, the bad, and ugly in me. <laughs> I love him dearly. He called me and just a couple weeks before that, say, hey, my dad's not doing good, okay. You know, he, he got covid Approaching ninety years old, he got checked into the hospital. I just said, "Hey, if you ever want me to come talk to him about Christ or anything, just let me know." And I could feel from Mervin; he, he's like a big brother to me. Honestly, he's always watched out for me. He was my camp counselor when I was a kid, running around to even now. He, I look up to him greatly; I have a lot of respect for him. He was like, "Well, Haruki, I would like you to come," but you know, I could see a, f- a sense of apprehension. It wasn't the apprehension of me talking to. Mr. Sakurai, but it's more—he was concerned for my health. He didn't want me to be exposed, right, to Mr. Sakurai, who has COVID, right? And I said, "Look, whenever it's the time, just call me. Minimally, uh, let me be there and just pray for you guys. All right? I love he and his brother dearly, like family to me. So that day comes. It's a Tuesday, almost three weeks ago, and. I meet, I meet he and his brother there, and Merv tells me, I don't think we're going to be able to see him. I don't think we're going to be able to actually see him, maybe through the window or something. I said, all right, that's fine. But in the back of my mind, I said, Lord, will you just allow an opportunity to talk to Mr. Sakurai? Will you do that? And we get there, we kind of collaborate, and we have to go one at a time up to the floor. All of us are outside, outside the hospital. And then so we decided, why don't you go up first, me, and then the brothers could say goodbye, If this is the last time they get to see him, and it was, so I go up there. I'm praying, Lord, just give me an opportunity, just give me a chance, Lord, just give me a chance. And somehow the staff puts a gown on me. I got my mask, got my glasses on, all that, and then they throw me into the room. Okay, I'm just going with it, and I say, "Hey, Mr. Sakurai, do you remember me? This Haruki, I'm Merv's friend, Steve's friend." You know, I'm the guy that coached. And, you know, I had all this stuff on me. So he, there's no way he could recognize you. And he kind of nods. He didn't have his glasses on. And usually when I seen him, he always had glasses on. He didn't have his glasses on. But I could see in his eyes, although he was much older than me, I could see, like, Merv in his face, Merv's look in his eyes. And I just say, hey, Mr. Sakurai, it's going to be okay. I want to tell you something right now. And I shared the gospel message with him. He just looked at me. And I'm like, I felt helpless. You got to understand, Mr. Osaka is an Issei, first generation Japanese American. If that means anything to you. I, pu- I remember putting my hand onto his knee and just, uh, and just praying, Lord, just be gracious. Please do a miracle right now. And I asked him again, and I said, do you want to put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? You need to do this now. Today is the day. Now is the time. There may be no tomorrow. And he finally said, yes. I was like, Wow. Prayed for him on the way out. I talked to his roommate too, just to get another guy into the family if I could. And then I leave, take off my stuff. I told Merv, and, and, and he and then he was like, "What?" And he goes up and he asks him the same thing. I heard you, you put your trust in Christ. He said, "Yes." And after Merv comes down, I'm just outside the hospital now, just rejoicing. And he tells me this. I'm like, "That's awesome." And then Merv was like, you know, I appreciate you coming, but, you know, I just felt, you know, mixed feelings about this, about you coming, you know, and, but I'm glad you did. And I said, I'm glad I did too. And you know what came to my mind, brothers and sisters? I told this to Merv. I said, look, it's as if you and I have been training in the off season together, working, and then the season starts, and the Super Bowl happens, and I decide not to play in the game when you give me this opportunity. Are you kidding me? This is what we live for. Is this not, brothers and sisters? This is why we exist. And I didn't know how this was going to play out, but God graciously played it out in this way. It could have been the other way too, but this is why we exist. If you're not thinking this way, we're just training for no reason. The game is happening right now, and the soil's fertile, in particular during this COVID season. We live for these moments. This is the spring of 51. This is the time now. The games are on right now. This is why we live on God's green earth. Finally, let's go to the final point. You have to have the will to win, the motivation to win, but we need the discipline. We need the discipline to win. Let me read verse 26. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I mean, I know which way I'm going. I'm running in my lane, and I'm heading that way to the finish line. <laughs> I know where I'm going. I'm not going backwards. I'm not going left. I'm not going right. I'm going straight at you towards the finish line. The finish line is my friend. I'm looking to embrace my finish line friend. <laughs> I box in such a way as not beating the air. It's funny. I, uh, Garrett Noah are... Our dear friend, our staff member, he's into virtual boxing to get in shape, right? He got this big old thing on, and he's sweating like a hog and just punching the air. lot of activity. I, I saw a video, too. A lot of activity, sweating, he's getting in shape, he lost pounds, but he's just punching the air. I'm like, oh my goodness. It's funny to everyone else, he thinks he's actually doing something, Right? But we need to be like Muhammad Ali and start hitting George Foreman in the head. That's what we're talking about. We need to have jab, 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 get that combination going. This is how this works. I'd be more animated. but I don't want to fall off this thing here. That'd be the worst thing. But this is what we're talking about. being Having strategic impact in hitting the target of evangelism. Verse 27 says, but I discipline my body and make it my slave. There is that word again. Discipline my body literally means I give myself a black eye. I'm beating up myself. I'm, I'm, I'm disciplined, training myself. I'm going to tell my body what to do rather than the body telling me what to do. I'm going to use a, my body to obey Christ, to honor him. I put my body under control and make it my slave. Matthew 18, and 8, 9. Jesus gives us some training tips there. He says, if your hand or feet causes you to sin, cut it off. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Now, this is hyperbolic language, okay? This is, Jesus isn't saying literally, let's get a machete and cut it off our foot, all right? This is not, but he's saying anything that causes you to stumble. It could be activities, it could be certain foods, it could be a certain job, it could be certain acquaintances, get rid of those. But more importantly, do the fight in here, The battle is won and lost right here, brothers and sisters. Right here, I'm pointing at my head. Your thought life. This is where sin is combated. Right there. If it's already manifesting, you got to go to the root. It's too late. Go to the the head. Go to your heart. What do you think about? What do you dream about? What do you meditate about? Attack the fight of of sin inside. This is what Jesus is calling for is radical repentance. This is what our Lord is calling for. He's not talking about just some activities, some external things, within some serious spiritual heart surgery. This is what Jesus is talking about, radical repentance. Because the issue is this. In verse 27, so that after I have preached to others, after he's heralded the good news of the gospel, I myself will not be disqualified. Disqualified. What? what is Paul saying? Paul is saying even if he is the one who's the proclaimer of the gospel, even he could be disqualified from ministry, disqualified from rewards, disqualified from, fame, from honor with the Lord. This is what Paul's talking about. In, in the Isthmian games at the Bema seat judge, he is the one who would look at a, a, an athlete and say, you're not fit enough. You can't run. You're disqualified, DQ'd. Paul is using that imagery saying, you know what? I could be disqualified too. He's making a greater to lesser, meaning if the apostle Paul could be disqualified, how much more, Corinthians? He's making a serious exhortation there. 2 Timothy here. Let me just read this part where Paul finishes. 2 Timothy 4, 6, and 7, and 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He knew it was time to finish. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. Can you imagine that? Would we be able to say that I have finished the course? I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved this appearing. In that day, what will it be like for you and me? Finishing up here, I I believe the Christian race is like a relay race. Paul got the baton handed off to him from Jesus Christ himself in Nabataean, Arabia. Paul, 2,000 years ago, started handing it off to many people. And 2,000 years later in the San Gabriel Valley, that baton has reached us. It's like a relay race. And we need to take that stick, stick it get it in our hands securely, run now. It's our time to run and run our leg as faithfully, as diligently as we possibly can. This is what we're called to do. Other saints for the past are counting on us. Saints of the future are counting on us to run our race faithfully, our leg faithfully. The baton has been passed to us. But just like Paul, we can be disqualified too. How can we be disqualified? Well, think about the runners. They strip down nearly naked, if not naked, to run without any hindrances. Do you have the wrong gear on? Are you running the race in some high heels or some dress shoes? Are you holding on? In other words, are you holding on to idols that encumber you and slow you down? Are you loving the world too much? That could disqualify you from the race. You can get injured. Why? Because the race is rigorous and you're not spiritually fit enough and you pull a hamstring, your spiritual hamstring explodes on you because you're not trained up enough. You don't know the word enough. You don't have enough Christian fellowship. People don't know who you are to help you and to exhort you to soundness in faith. You could run in a different lane. All of a sudden you run diligently, but instead of gospel ministry, you're into other things. Social justice ministries or other stuff that is completely off the track. We need to be faithful to the gospel. Or you could flat out drop the baton and just fail morally. DQ'd. You've been disqualified. Or you could flat out quit. Life trials are too hard. I can't handle this. Persecution's coming, brothers and sisters. Don't be the one to drop out. Don't be the one to tap out because life is going to get challenging. Make sure you're trained up for that day. Because if you are disqualified, you forfeit your witness to the world, you forfeit your ministry, you you forfeit your effectiveness, you you forfeit your Christian genuine fellowship, you forfeit your influence, you forfeit your rewards. You're on the sidelines or in the stands watching everybody else. You don't want to be that. You don't want to be that. In conclusion, there's a lot of merit to just one baby. We have to know what we're winning for. We have to know what we're striving for. God is in control of anyone coming to Christ. Our role is to run the race as hard as we can. Be faithful. When God gives you an opportunity, open your mouth. When God gives you an opportunity, love well with your hands and feet, and then open your mouth. Surrender yourself. To those of us right now, perhaps you feel like you've been kind of hamstrung right now. This relay race is more like a marathon relay race. The Christian life is a long run, God willing. If you're on the ground right now, nursing your hamstring, get up. Get up and get back in the race. Repent. Our Lord is gracious. Our Lord is good. Our Lord is merciful. He paid a lot for you. He's going to understand. Get up, repent from your sins, and keep going now. Get back in the race. And, and for the rest of us, I want to read us this out of Revelation here. This is the end here, guys. I think it's worth it. I like to see things clearly. Revelations 4 is a scene of heaven where John goes up, to, sees heaven, and he sees Christ on the throne, Okay? Imagine that day. He sees these angelic creatures singing, holy, 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 they're worshiping him with great intensity. In the verse 10, the 24 elders appear. These are the representatives of 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 those who are saved. The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him. Who lives forever and ever. That's Jesus. And what will they do? And they will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. We will cast our crowns before the Lord, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, that be must seat, judge Jesus Christ Himself. We will cast our crowns before Him. The exhortation is this let's not come empty handed. Let's have crowns to cast at the feet of Jesus as an act of worship. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for how good you are. Thank you how you make it so clear in your scriptures. Thank you for men like Paul who use the metaphor of the day, which is so visible in our day today. How we're called to exercise that same level of intensity that athletes strive for a perishable reef. Lord, give us this will. The game plan is clear, but give us this will. Lord, show us more clearly the motivation that is found in eternity. And, Lord, continue building us the right discipline to win. So, Father, I thank you. I pray for those right now who have been struggling in sin, those who have been wrestling with being able to be open with you and others. Lord, I pray, Lord, that they will believe the message of the gospel that says that they've been redeemed. Like the song said, we are no longer to be ashamed we're unashamed. And they will believe this. Father, I pray for Evergreen SGV that we will have a sense of urgency to run the race that you've given us. as faithfully as possible by the power of your Holy Spirit for your glory. What a privilege it is to be part of your church here at Evergreen SUV. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.